All right, y'all. Yeah, yeah, y'all. Oh, yeah, y'all. Coming in Mass Effect, y'all. I don't know what. I don't know. I'm not a DJ. Yeah. So, in honor of hip hop, the genre that even if you don't care for it as much, it definitely has formed our culture to what it is today. Hip hop on August 11th of this year will be 50 years old. 50 years old. And I got to say, I love hip hop. And I feel like hip hop can own, cannot, it can lose its way, but it can never decline. It could only elevate because what may have been hot for us coming like, like with the young money era for my generation, y'all know how that shit went and that shit was crazy. The effect that Young Money had on us would be the effect that Ice Spice and Lotto got on um, the newer generation type shit. Y'all get what I'm saying? So it can never get worse. It can only elevate because we all come from different eras of hip hop, period. So I'm like, hmm, what could I do to not only show my appreciation for hip hop, but also give down some history on what the fuck was going on in it? So I was like, there's certain situations that happened that did mold hip hop for the better and for the worse. And those are rap beefs. So with a rap beef, it was going way back to like the 70s when hip hop first started. You would have um, MCs with their DJs in the back or just straight up MCs. And they would just go back and forth, tit for tat, tit for tat, tit for tat. And they would just battle it out. It wouldn't get violent. It wouldn't get crazy. It would all just be on the mic and it would all just be on wax. And that was the respect that gained hip hop to be an actual credible genre. Now, I've been wanting to do an episode like this for so long. But I wanted to do it right. And I also wanted it to be like, you know, a theme for it. So this is going to be something great. It's going to be something great. So stay tuned. As we all know, hip hop was born almost 15 years ago on August 11th, 1973 at a DJ Cool Herc party. With all the culture that was born from it, such as the clothing, the dance styles, influences on pop culture, and creating some of, if not the greatest MCs of all time. With that being said, when things are good, they're great. However, in order to have something grow, you have to go through a series of unfortunate events. In this case, hip-hop has been through ups and downs, as well as positive and negative changes to the genre slash culture. Whether you have your first chart-topping hip-hop song being called a sellout due to having a band and percussion used for the production, or if it's the derogatory words that are used against women of the Black community, what we can't deny is that hip-hop has only grown to elevate and to influence not only our culture, but others as well. It's international, and just like wars, sports, and even in Hollywood, hip-hop has been known to host some of the best rivalries in this whole entirety. So, in honor of having 50 years of something that we all hold dearly to our hearts, I present to you hip-hop semi-centennial top rivalries that made hip-hop history. So, I want you to go back in time, think of all the imagery of hip-hop back then, before it elevated to what it is now. 
got your Kango hats, you got your door knockers, you got your big, big gold chains, and you got your rings, boom boxes being put on your shoulder as you walk around listening to the radio station that plays hip-hop, or a brand-new cassette tape of the latest mix you recorded at the party you went to. Now, during this time, right before the golden age of hip-hop, two DJs were starting to make their statements on not only the hip-hop scene, but on the airwaves as well. In the early to mid-80s, if you take the FR7 train and walk a little distance, you will end up in the Queensbridge Projects, home of some well-known members from the Juice Crew. Members of the Juice Crew included MC Shan, Big Daddy Kane, who I'm playing now, Roxanne Shante, Cool G Rap, Biz Marquis, Tragedy Gaddafi, Granddaddy IU, TJ Swan, and the Originators, Mr. Magic, and DJ Marley Maul. Across the bridge where you take any train going uptown, especially on the Green Line, you then have Boogie Down Productions, which included KRS-One, DJ Scott LaRock, and the youngin' at the time, D-Nice. But before we go into why these two crews even got into it in the first place, we have to give a background on the who's who of the situation. So first, let's begin with the crew with the juice and how it even originated. Bronx native of Puerto Rican descent, John Rib was born on March 15, 1956, was already of well-known variety once he debuted on the radio station WHBI and NYC with his disco showcase. Once his DJing got word on the airwaves, Frankie Crocker, legendary Frankie Crocker, use Google because Google is your friend with that. He brought Rivers, now going by Mr. Magic, over to WBLS with the first rap radio show on a major station called Rap Attack, which featured another up-and-coming DJ, Marley Mar. Co-produced by Tyrone Williams, a.k.a. Fly Ty, Magic got word of Marley once he heard Marley's mix of Buffalo Gals from Malcolm McLaurin, and he was sold. So with Rap Attack receiving a lot of positive feedback, this made Mr. Magic a full-time DJ in 1982. Now, Mr. Magic wasn't really a well-known DJ due to his mixing and scratching and only came out with one record, which was under the alias Sir Juice, releasing his only single in 1984, Magic's Message, There's a Better Way. However, the same couldn't be said for his main man, Marley. Now, born Marley Williams in Queens, New York, September 30th, 1962, he grew up in Queensbridge Projects, and his music interest peaked when he would attend local talent shows and neighborhood parties, thus becoming an accomplished DJ during rap's early days. While mixing for the label Tough City, Tyrone Williams, a.k.a. Fly Ty, decided to find and also be kind of like producer for the label Cold Chillin' in 1986. So Marley was, you know, it was everybody. So you have Fly Ty being the co-founder and everything, Marley being the main, main, main producer, Magic being the spokesperson. You feel me? Shit was smooth. So his big, his big debut record was with another Queensbridge resident who was known to be a heavy hitter at the only age, at only the age of 14, excuse me. And it was none other than Roxanne Shantae. Now, Marley was remixing the song from UTFO's song, Roxanne, Roxanne, and decided to have Shantae do a record in response to the cruise record. In which, by the way, she recorded that in one take while having her clothes in the dryer. Look it up. I don't lie about this. But... I'm going to get to Shorty later. So when Marley and Magic really linked up, then they decided to make the Juice Crew legit in 1983. Three years later, Marley would find himself making six figures by producing the majority of the Juice Crew members' projects. Now, before I even get into the next section, just remember, before rap became as lucrative as it is in today's world, 
there was a time you was really rapping just to rap and have fun with it and really just get your name out there and have street cred. But you wasn't really seeing no money. So the fact that Marley being the DJ that he was and introducing the scratch and the sampling that he introduced and that gave him some, you know, finances and had, you know, some poor in his pocket due to the fact of it being it was becoming more lucrative. Now we enter the Prince of the Juice Crew, the one at the moment who carried in the Juice Crew on his back. When I tell you, none other than MC Shan. I had to put that out there because there was once upon a time, who was MC, MC Shan, right? Exactly. But there was once upon a time, nobody was touching him. So... Sean Mokey was born on September 6, 1965 in Queens, New York, another member of the Juice crew that resided in the Queensbridge project. So in 1985, Shan was signed to MCA Records with his first and only single, Feed the World. Now, because hip-hop wasn't quite there just yet, MCA didn't know what to do with Shan, so he was dropped from the label. Ironically enough, Fly Ty was the founder of Cold Chillin' Records, as I stated before, and MC Shan was about to take his car. Like, he was really picking the lock trying to take his shit but due to him being cousins with marley mar himself they went easy on him so during this time before the bridge wars took place shan was in works of his album his debut album down by law which was to which was to be released in 1987 however he was already releasing like singles from the album now due to his ego and already being an established MC, he didn't feature any other Juice Crew members but DJ Marley Maul. He didn't see fit to work with them. So, like, imagine having an ego big enough that you decide to not work with newcomers slash underdogs, Biz Marquee, Big Daddy Kane, Cool G Rap, or Tragedy Gaddafi. Like, that's what I'm just saying. You know, you never know who's going to be right there that's going to pass you that you might be able to use, man. It's all being humble, I feel. So... While making a name for themselves, although with Magic and Marley already having their name and sounds on the airwaves and MC Shan being the prince and Roxanne Shante being the actual princess. Speaking of this Roxanne Shante girl, okay, anyway, let's talk about her. So, as we know, this series is about rap beefs. However, one person is not given enough credit for actually having started disc records and putting them on wax. Sure, rap battles were already happening since Cold Crush versus the Fantastic Five. From a female rapper, it was unheard of. And from a 14-year-old girl, it was mind-blowing. Enter Lolita Shantae Gooden for March 8, 1970. Of course, in Queens, New York. Now, throughout her younger years, she was always battle rapping since the young age of seven in the Queensbridge projects and would win every time. This then sparked Marley and Magic's interest toward her. Apparently, there was a show that UTFO was booked for and they did not show up. Thus, Marley and Magic started cooking up something while Shantae was doing laundry. Marley asked her to record a track in response to UTFO's Roxanne Roxanne record. And in one take, she delivered the one diss track that would be responded to by a plethora of artists with over 40-plus diss tracks in return. So, at this point, she earned her spot in the Juice Crew indefinitely. She ain't going no fucking where. Fuck is she going? Nowhere. 
So I did my background of the Juice Crew. So now let's take the train uptown and head over to the South Bronx and get to know our next group, BDP, otherwise known as Boogie Down Productions. Members of BDP included front runners KRS-One, Scott LaRock, D-Nice, Miss Melody, Cool DJ Red Alert, and other members such as Heather B. Gardner, D-Square, Sydney Mills, Lee Smith, Kenny Parker, and Levi167. But for the sake of keeping short on this crew, I'm going to only talk about KRS-One, Scott LaRock, and D-Nice. So who was the profound DJ that had BPD best interest? That DJ is known as no other than Cool DJ Red Alert, born Frederick Crew on November 27, 1956 in Antigua, but then moved to Harlem, New York. He quickly was influenced by the sounds and music around him. At the age of 19, he was keen to seeing his influences at local clubs on Thursday and Friday by seeing DJs such as Grandmaster Flowers, Pete DJ Jones, and the Together Brothers. Later on, he then was intrigued by the hip-hop stylings that was coming out of the Bronx. Hearing the godfathers of hip-hop such as Grandmaster Flash, Africa Bambada, and the birthing father of hip-hop DJ Cool Hurt, once hearing them, he was set on being a hip-hop DJ. Now, of course, from word of mouth, WRKS 98.7, otherwise known as the late, great Kiss FM, rest in peace to Kiss FM, the director, Barry Mayo, who was the director of the radio station, was, you know, interested. So, by this meeting happening, Red Alert was born and thus becoming Kiss FM's top DJ. With that one out the way, we can get to the man who admits that without dropping the track heard around the world, he would not be who he is. KRS-One himself, which stands for Knowledge Reigns Supreme Over Nearly Everyone, born Lawrence Chris Parker in Brooklyn on August 20th, 1965. His father was never in his life, but his mother was, however, due to her choice in partners, Chris was never too fond of them. So while his mother was with one of his stepfathers, he was very abusive towards Chris, and his mother wasn't too fond of his parenting tactics towards that. So she packed up her things and moved him, his little brother, and herself uptown to the boogie down. He would frequently run away, though, and not be at home, thus in between the boroughs of Brooklyn and the Bronx. Until he himself signed into a group home at the age of 16 in Brooklyn. Once he became of age, then he went back uptown. And he then went to a homeless shelter in the South Bronx at the age of 20. Now, while at the shelter, he met a social worker, otherwise known as his saving grace, Scott Sterling, a.k.a. Scott LaRock. Little did they know from their first encounter that they would create hip-hop history. So, of course, in honor to pay respect to the late, great, and always remembered Scott LaRock, let's just remember this. Scott Sterling was born in the Morris Heights section of the Bronx on March 2nd, 1962. He was a standout person by attending Castleton College in Vermont, was still having a passion for music. He returned to NY in search of how he could branch out his talents and an ear for it. Life had other plans, and then he, with the help of a family friend, started working at the Franklin Armory Men's Shelter. Once he was off work, he would spin records at the Broadway Repertoire Theater. Although he met KRS-One at the shelter, he was also another. He was also met by another profound hip hop figure, D Nice. 
who was born Derek T. Jones in Harlem, New York, on June 19, 1970. D-Nice was only 15 years old when he was approached by Scott LaRock. His uncle worked at the shelter that Scott worked at, and Scott LaRock didn't know what D-Nice would be useful for when asking him to join his crew, but he saw something in him that hip-hop would be grateful for. His nicknames were the Human TR-808 or the 808. And he gained popularity for producing the song Self-Destruction for the Stop the Violence Movement in honor of the passing of Scott LaRock, the first well-known Def Link in hip-hop. Now, as we're thinking of, before we even get into the beef, I just wanted to point out certain things. Now, when it comes to the main key figures, hip-hop is hip-hop, Okay. Hip-hop is hip-hop is hip-hop. Hip-hop was never meant to be volatile. It was meant to have fun. However, you know, due to the people born where they was born at, you know, violence sometimes just is something that they're taught and something that's learned. So they use it for survival in everyday life when they don't have to. Some people can't really handle words, so they go straight to violence. Some people will stand on their respect and trade that in for freedom just so they know I didn't let him disrespect me that day, you know? Me? Shit. I'll just read a bitch. Anyway, when it comes to the conversation of hip-hop, the conversation of hip-hop is this. This battle sparked the first, if not the main reason on why diss records, battle tracks, rivalries really was happening. Now, I feel like later on after this, a lot of personal... Things came in between a lot of actual things in hip-hop. Therefore, it wasn't really super... How can I say it? It, it? it wasn't super... It wasn't hip-hop no more. Like, you bringing in your personal issues on wax whole time. I'm trying to battle you word for word. I didn't like what you said in that record, so I'm going to spawn with another record. I'm going to spawn with my bars and shit. And it's crazy how people now is like, oh, get back to it. Get back to it. Get back to it. And I'm like, y'all don't even support real rap anyway. Y'all don't really be supporting real rap. So let's be honest with it. But just appreciate that. If it wasn't for this battle right here, we wouldn't really have a verbal battle. I'm just saying. I'm saying, honey. And I mean it, honey. Okay? But anyway, we're just going to go right down and talk about the wars next, cause it's the wars, bro. Like, come on now. You love to hear the story again and again of how it all got started way back when. The monument is right in your face. Sit and listen for a while to the name of the place. The when i tell you because of that damn bar that's how shit started now hip-hop could be missing a bar could be misinterpreted for so much and so many things so for that bar alone People felt real disrespected due to the fact of it being MC Shan. This song, this is his song, The Bridge. Now, MC Shan released this song before he released his self titled album, Down by Law. And while he released this track, it was gaining traction. However, at the time, 
after he said, well, before I get there, after he says that bar and he says hip hop was in the dark. Now, with that being said, once he said hip hop was being in the dark type shit or what have you, at the time you had Def Jam, which was ran by Russell Simmons, who was from Queens. You had Run DMC, who was from Queens. You have the Juice Crew, who is from Queens. You got Marley and Magic, who is from Queens. LL Cool J, who's from Queens. You had a lot of Queens rappers really setting the tone for hip-hop at the time. So, you know, Queens, you know, was feeling cocky at this point. Because, you know, hip-hop, the Bronx wasn't making much noise because you didn't have big, big crews like... You didn't ha- like 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 five like the um Grandmaster and the Furious Five. You didn't have that going on at this point. You had crews that rolled together, but they were still doing their individual shit. So of course the main hitters starting it off were the MCs, right? Not really. So in order for a gauntlet to be thrown, it has to start somewhere. So let's take it to the airwaves. Now, as stated earlier, Red Alert and Mr. Magic, along with Marley Mall. We're on the radio airwaves. Red Alert on Kiss FM and Magic on WBLS. Now, Magic was on the airwaves first. But once Red Alert started to make some noise on the airwaves and in Magic fashion, he was a little shook by it. So, in typical shit talking, he starts mocking him by calling him Red Dirt, Duck Alert, and other childish things. What the fuck is a Duck Alert? What the? Red Dirt? lot? I guess that shit was a diss back then, because I would have said your mama. So, with the start of that, Red took it personally, but didn't stoop down to his level. Instead, he kept breaking new artists, and one of them included UTFO single, Hanging Out. He wasn't too keen on the main tracks, so he flipped it to the B-side, which he favored, and thus being the first DJ to play Roxanne Roxanne. And once he broke out this Brooklyn Trio's hit, Magic and Marley decided to brew something else. So, like I said, it's either it's on two accounts. So they booked the show and they didn't show up. This is when they retaliated. So my thing is, I feel like once he put them on the airwaves, and then once you know the song got popular, and then Magic and Marley booked him for a show or what have you, they didn't show up. That's when Marley and Magic was like, you know what? F that, we got something coming better. So, once Roxanne decided to lease her debut track, that's when one of Red Alert's friends, Spider D, got his femc Sparky D, to go at it with Roxanne. So, this is kind of like the battle. So, it's like, Red Alert drops the track, UTFO, um, Roxanne, Roxanne, he plays it. Magic and Marley, they know a Roxanne. Roxanne puts out a diss track. Red Alert people decide to go ahead and get their homegirl, Sparky D. Sparky D go at it with Roxanne. It was a tip for Tad at this point. So while this was happening, Marley was developing the legendary Juice Crew. He already had Roxanne, but he also had his cousin and frontman, NC Shan. Now, Shan was known to come at artists. He came at a very young but up-and-coming LL Cool J, as well as coming for KRS-One as well. Shan even tried to come for Red Alert a few times, but that was handled and dead before anything else was to occur from that. Like, you try to press him, Red Alert, be like, you don't get the fuck out of here. You know? I don't know what's up with them Queens niggas, but them Bronx niggas, like, get the fuck out of here, bro. Like, uh-huh. 
Now, from Roxanne, so from Roxanne, Roxanne, why am I saying Roxanne? I'm trying to say Roxanne. Now, from Roxanne Shantae's account, BDP was just trying to get their sound out there on the airwaves. And this is one of the songs they wanted to put out. This was also in retaliation to um, MC Shan's song, The Bridge. Well, one, uh, one out of the two tracks that was a response to The Bridge. So this was before anything had came out. This is before anything. Because, you know, in order to get your sound out, you got to promote your sound. This was old school. I couldn't, You couldn't go on social media, record, get some following, and that was it. No. You had to literally be on foot, go on train, hit up such, such, such. It was easier access back then, too. And boom, there you have it. Now, once Boogie Down Productions, when Scott LaRock and KRS-One had approached Mr. Magic, he played their record, but disrespected the fuck out of them entirely. So how I feel about it, before I even go into it, it was no beef. Like I said, rap was rap. Cause you know, you know, members of the Juice Crew as well as BDP, it was nothing personal. Rap is rap. Hip hop is hip hop. This is what we do. However, somebody gonna catch a shade. Somebody gonna get ricocheted. So apparently, once the song South Bronx started to play, only a few bars in, Magic takes the record, breaks it. And says to KRS-One and Skylar Rock, this is not real hip-hop. This is garbage. Real hip-hop is Marley Maul, MC Shan, Roxanne Shantae. This is all it took for the Bridge Wars to really ignite and have sparks fly. Now, in the mid-80s, Red Alert meets Skylar Rock and promotes the hell out of his MC KRS-One. He was already aware of his vocal ability when hearing him for the first time at Latin Quarter Celebrity Tuesdays. Now, by this time, MC Shan already released his well-known his well-known track, The Bridge. So that was getting airplay from Magic as well as other DJs in New York. KRS-One didn't take too fond of the track because he felt that it was implied that hip-hop started in Queens and not in the Bronx. So, of course, Red Alert heard... Of this, so the tape Scott LaRock gave him, the tape by BDP titled Sound Bronx, which was taking digs at MC Shan for being dropped from MCA and other digs. So once Mr. Magic would see Red Alert, he would be as quiet as a church mouse and as given DJ academics if he was in fact a DJ. Like, when, so, you know, they both DJ and you got to see each other in person. It's not like it's just social media. I never get to see you. Now you seeing me in person, live and in living color. And so, with that being said, at the time, when Red Alert would see Magic, he would confront him and be like, yo, why you doing all that, you know, shit talking, you know, coming crazy and things like that? And Magic be like, oh, no, 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 we just trying to get something going here to make it more attention and shit. And Red Alert was like, that's weird, but whatever. Shit like that. So, now... Once South Bronx was gaining notoriety, BDP was not done with the Juice Crew just yet and then released a song that a certain MC would not recover from when 
Now, once South Bronx was gaining notoriety, Boogie Down Productions was not done with the Juice Crew just yet and then released a song that a certain MC would not recover from. And it's this one. Just by the piano, it's like the downfall. Once they released this song, once this song got airplay, it was no way that not only MC Shan would not recover, but no other artist would even try to release something that was on the same caliber of this diss track. Like, now, the Juice Crew itself wasn't extinct, but MC Shan would only be known as the sole loser of the Bridge Wars. When his album down by law was released it did have a track in return called kill that noise but it didn't bring much noise to the rapper afterwards it's rumored that mc shan wanted to retaliate and go harder on the next diss track after kill that noise but marley wasn't too keen on the idea so mc shan said so himself i should have gone and got a new producer and just released the track mc shan was kind of through with it at this point thus ending the career of shan but bringing a rising tar star to krs1 Let's just say they couldn't recover after that. I ain't gonna hold you. If I was shit, I'd be mad as hell with my Kango in my hand, crunching that shit hard as hell, rocking back and forth, sucking my T ready to fight somebody. And y'all gotta remember, this is a diss track that really like set the tone for diss tracks. Like, it was so bad that it was good that they literally couldn't, Shan couldn't come back from this, man. It was like, damn. Bet you wish he would have used one of his damn Juice Cruise members then. But at the same time, it was um fun fact, they was recording Criminal Minded in Queensbridge. Not that far from them niggas. So it's like, they was recording this shit. And when I tell you that shit is like, well, damn, what a that's just the middle finger straight to the face. Like, fuck you. I'm in your I'm in your hood recording. Now what? Anyway, so the bridge wars were far less violent from the name suggests. It was restricted entirely to music and the trading of disc records. It helped spawn the idea of a feud that could begin and end through rhymes alone. And although it led to the end of M. Shan's rapping career, 
It did not touch on the bloody depths of the East Coast, West Coast beef of the 90s that saw two of rap's greatest gunned down in their prime. Unfortunately enough, though, we would lose a core member of the Bridge Wars, but not because of the Bridge Wars. Five months after the release of BDP's debut album, Criminal Minded, Scott LaRock would not be able to fully enjoy nor see his brethren skyrocket to the heights of fame. It was one night in Manhattan at a club, and D-Nice was talking to a girl who happened to be this guy's ex or something. So in order to defuse the situation, D-Nice went to go get his big brother, Scott LaRock, and have him de-escalate the situation. Things didn't work out that way, and gunshots started firing, and for Scott, it would be his demise. The bullet was not meant specifically for him, but because the shots were aiming at the car, it ricocheted and hit Scott in the back of his head. He was conscious enough for when the paramedics asked if he was okay, his final words were, I'm getting tired and starting to feel cold. With the passing of Scott LaRock, this was a doorway for D-Nice to make a special tribute for him when KRS-One, as well as another as well as other predominant rappers in the industry, such as Heavy D, MC Light, Run DMC, Public Enemy, Miss Melody, and others came together. With the loss of Scott LaRock, he became the first well-known hip-hop figurant at the time to be lost to gun violence, but sad to say he would not be the last. So me talking about this is more so just to bring light to what it was, because without this diss track, this tracks would not be as hard and really go there like KRS-One went there on MC Shannon and the Juice Crew. Like, he went hard on all of them, you feel me? So, what happened to all of them afterwards, you say? Well, like I said, Scott LaRock passed away. D-Nice is still DJing. He's a very well, 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 well-known DJ. Marley Maul is an icon. Magic and um, DJ Red Alert. Legends in the game. Um, due to their contribution to hip-hop, KRS-One skyrocketed, MC Shan went into darkness. <laughs> Roxanne Shantae, granted she had a nice flowing career because it wasn't lucrative for a female rapper. She retired at the young age of 25, but now she is getting her just due, and I'm so happy for that. As of other members of the Juice Crew, Biz Marquis, Big Daddy Kane, Tra- Tragedy Gaddafi, you are aware of those names, so all of them did pretty well for themselves after their prime. And they're all well-respected. So what do you guys think? Do y'all feel like this was, like, you know, setting the bar for diss tracks in the future? Would you like to hear more about rap beefs and stuff and who really came out the victor? I mean, let me know. Talk to me. Talk to me! But thank you guys for tuning in. I love you guys so much. And happy hip-hop anniversary, people!